Welcome to another episode of the Gary Anderson F1 Show. I'm Ed Straw and joining me as always is Gary Anderson, the former Jaguar and Jordan technical director. Of course, a man who's probably forgotten more about F1 than most will ever know, having first started working it back in 1973. Well, Gary, we're going to pile straight in with the first of the listener questions. This is a really important one that I'd like to know the, the answer to. Christopher Partridge asks, what would it take to get you to do a shoey? Um, it would take quite a lot, I suppose. I mean, um, you know, winning a Grand Prix with your own driver is a, is a fairly big thing. So I suppose you could say that if you're up there collecting the Constructors' Awards, then you might just do it with your own driver. But I, I thought it was very brave of the other drivers to uh, to take Ricciardo's shoe and, and do things with it. I mean, you know, it's just a very um, dodgy area to be in, I suppose. But there's sort of been a precedent set now, so what's going to happen next, I'm not quite sure, because it's uh, it's obviously going to be quite interesting to see what happens on the podium. Um, but it would take quite a bit for me to do one, I must admit. Yeah, it's probably something you dread if you end up on the podium with Daniel Ricciardo. Do you ever get on a Grand Prix podium? I guess it was a lot of your career was in the days before they had all sorts of team personnel up there all the time. Normally there'd be a, a constructor's representative, but a slightly more boring selection uh, in the past, wasn't it? Yeah, no, I, I never made it up there. Um, you know, I suppose the one that really was the Stuart one in uh, 1999. Jackie was up there, but it was it was just an honour to see Jackie up there. We, I never looked at it in my time to think that I deserved to be up there because a team's a team. You know, the driver's an exceptional part of that team, but he's still part of the team. So if he won the race, you know, obviously he deserved to be up there. And then the, the from my point of view, it should be the team principal. He's the He's the, or- the guy that should orchestrate the the wins, and you know to see Jackie up there um, at the Nuremberg Ring, which was the last Grand Prix he actually won as well. You know, many many years before that was actually you know, a very proud moment. So you don't have to be up there to be proud of it. Yeah, I think certainly you can't argue with uh, with Jackie being on the podium for for that one. Well, we've got a few more slightly more serious questions. Although I'm pleased we've uh, cleared up the shoey question mark inevitably we've got several questions about the f1 copycat rules because the fia has published these regulations that have tried to draw a line between what is taking inspiration from another car and what is copying another car so alex asks are the copycat rules something that we've seen coming for a while or do you think it's purely a reaction to the pink mercedes saga well yes it is a reaction to the pink mercedes uh, saga and the reason of it happening is really because the regulations are such that they've been written in a way that now means that copying is you know illegal as such or, or not seen to be the right thing to do you know in the past the regulations weren't there so copying was was something that was done um but obviously now when you write a regulation it's up to the teams to find a way through that so when you've got intellectual property rights and all this stuff and bits you can buy, bits you can't buy, bits you've got to make, bits you can't, you don't have to make. While you've got all that, there will be um, regulation infringements, I suppose you might call it. So it's the same with this with the copycat rules as it's been written. I'm sure there's areas in it where the teams will still push the boundaries. Uh, that's their job as such. Um, Copying, blatant copying, is something that's a bit a bit difficult to to take because as a team and as a technical director of that team, I think you want to instigate your own direction. You want to, you know, make sure that whenever that car does win a race, if it does win a race, that you can stand back and say, "Yeah, we actually won that." You know, you don't want to look over your shoulder and think, "Thanks, chaps, for uh, 
for making a good car for me, you know, um, to another team because that's it's just not it's not what the soul of Formula One's all about. So I would I would always have fought the copy and rule. I I do agree with you there, Ed, saying you know inspiration from other people's for sure because that's what you you should do. You should never shut your eyes to what's happening around you outside in the big world. But uh, to actually copy it means that you're not able to come up with your own concept and evolve it to a solution that's capable of winning. Um, and there isn't that many people can do that, but there are some, and that's part of the game. That's part of the job of being in charge of a technical team. On the same topic, Colin Hasty says, racing innovation and engineering has always been about taking an idea, sometimes from others and developing it. Lion Hill, observe, seagulls fly, design spitfire. And he says, should we not be rolling back anti-copy rules into a Beatit Boys approach? Um, yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm saying the same thing as to the answer to that earlier question. In a way, I, I think that would be right. Um, it's, it's about not taking that blatant component. You know, if you could change the nose from a car onto another car, then it's blatantly a copy. You know, you can't do that sort of thing. If things are interchangeable, then it's blatantly you know, a direct copy manufactured to the same tolerances, the same specification, the same everything. Um, but to take inspiration from seeing something, that's happened forever. You know, wings appeared on cars, on a car, others followed. Ground effect appeared on a car, others followed. Um, it, it goes on forever, front engine cars, rear engine cars. It was always the inspiration of somebody that set the, the standard and everybody else followed the best route. And that can be complementary, you know. Um, Colin Chapman would look at it now and think, well, you know, he sort of created or evolved, I suppose you might call it, what was called ground effect back in the in the late 70s. And everybody followed that route. To this day, everybody is still playing around with ground effect of some sort or another. So those are the things that I think you can say they've always been copied, but they've never been blatantly component copied. It's just been, as I say, an inspiration, an idea, a direction, a philosophy, whatever. I think that that still that still has to be. The regulations nowadays have closed in so much that that any wide speculation of building a, a fan car, for example, or a six wheeled car or whatever, you can't do any of that stuff anymore. So it's all about small detail and that's where blatant copying of component becomes a little bit more difficult. But the regulations themselves have been written in such a way that when their regulations written people will try to find solutions to that regulation. And that, that's just human. That's just human being trying to exploit everything to the maximum. Stephen Harris asks, can you think of any historic examples of blatant copycat cars to the same extent as the racing points? Why did it take so many seasons for another team's car to look the same as the championship dominant car, in particular the nose shape? Um, it's a difficult one because, as we always say, you know, every car... Um, evolves itself it doesn't it doesn't sort of start as a finished product it starts off as a as a concept and you exploit all those bits and as you get better things on it you know you go that direction um as you get better barge boards or a different wing design or a different nose or whatever you exploit your own direction for um the more efficiency for more downforce um whatever your your basic sort of standards that you're looking for are, are. so it's, it's never that the car evolves, comes back and looks like somebody else because it sort of isn't, isn't a black heart. There is no, no black and white way of designing a Formula 1 car. Many, many things work, as we can see over the other cars. You, know, you take the Red Bull to the Mercedes to the, 
Ferrari to the Renault, for example, they look the same and to an extent, but that's because the regulations are the way they are. But in detail, they're quite different. So they have all evolved from being their initial concept and optimizing everything as best possible. Whereas the, you know, the racing point, I must admit, some of the detail is a bit blatant. I am sure that you could sit down and design a nose that would look a bit different from the Mercedes one and do exactly the same thing. But that hasn't happened on the racing point. So that's the one thing that attracts everybody's attention. You know, it's happened in the past. We had the, the Arrow's shadow thing in the, in the 70, late 70s. Um, that was a slightly different because it was a, a group of people that worked for Shadow started up a new company called Arrows, and obviously, you know, they can't forget what they've learned. So they went there and built, theoretically, um, another shadow as such. Um, and then again, we had the Flavio Briatore was involved with um, the Benetton to the to the Ligier. I think it was 95 or 96. And, you know, we used to joke in the pit lane that at least neither team would run out of noses because you could take the nose from one car and put it on the other one. It was, it was a slightly different shade of blue paint on it, but, you know, not that much different. So it has happened in the past. Um, can you stop it? I don't think you can ever stop it, but it should just be about, you know, sort of lighting the candle to give you a thought pattern and a direction that something has on the car to take pictures, 3D pictures, whatever, model it all. It's a bit far-fetched, I think. You know, it's a bit, a bit too much in detail. You're not focusing on yourself. You're focusing on somebody else. And uh, while you're doing that, you'll always be behind. You'll always play, be playing catch-up. Because what you're copying is history, basically. Uh, that team should be going on to an another step. So I don't think we can see that with Racing Point, to be honest. You know, they may have the 2019 Mercedes as such, but Mercedes got 2020 Mercedes. So you'll always be playing catch-up. And the final question on copycat cars is from Stuart Henry, who asks, how predominant are techniques like stereophotogrammetry within F1 for capturing rivals' designs? Stereophotogrammetry is one of those things that's banned in the, the rules that prevent reverse engineering. There's there's four areas they, they describe as reverse engineering, and most of it is about using imaging to try and create 3D models and that kind of thing. So how much do you think this sort of thing has happened? To be honest, I have not got a clue, you know, uh, if there's technology out there that will do something, Formula One teams will have it um, for sure, because that's what it's all about. That's why you know teams are spending two, three, four hundred million dollars a year because they can have those toys, those tools, um, and even if it sort of didn't click for them to use that to copy other other teams' components, they would be using it for their own components to make sure that they could have, you know, they could model something up from their own component to make sure it was as they believed it was or as it was drawn. You know, I don't know, I'm just exaggerating stuff here, to be honest, to, to say that Formula One, if the technology is about there to do something, Formula One will find a solution to, to, to using it to the best of their advantage. Uh, you know, again, there's hundreds of photographers, normally there's hundreds of photographers there taking pictures of, of, um, of cars. Uh, and to be honest, it's, it's quite easy to sort of get quite detailed pictures of it but actually making those detailed pictures into a component and then exploiting it on your package can be can be quite difficult i mean i've been to a couple of sort of copying law cases really where you know we've we've seen wing profiles uh, for example being compared within half a millimeter of each other as far as profiles concerned and yet it was shot down as, as not being the same. You know, it was so close. It was within 
nothing. Um, so at the end of the day, it, there's a judgment call there as to what is a copy and what is not a copy. Um, and that's, that's the fine line. You know, at the end of the day, if two drones can fit over the top of each other within a certain tolerance, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying what that is, 1%, 10%, I'm not saying what I know what it needs to be, but if two drones fit over the top of each other, then that should be considered to be within the realms of, of copying. But I agree with earlier on, be at it, boys. That's what it should be about. You know, you should be, if, if somebody, i.e., let's say Red Bull, build the best car in the pit lane and it's quick, if everybody wants to copy that, uh, and I was Adrian Newey, I'd be taking that as a pat on my back, that I'd done a good job, everybody else wants to copy it, everybody else is trying to make it, but they're still going to be, as I say, they're still going to be that year behind because you should be moving on to the next to the next level. So be at it, boys, get on with it. Of course, F1's going back to Turkey this weekend. Mark Eggleton says, do you think Turn 8 at Istanbul Park will still be a challenge for the drivers or will the current cars make it less of a challenge like Eau Rouge at Spa? Yeah, the, the, you know, the current cars Mark, have got so much um, so much grip um, that Turn 8 should be, you know, a bit of a walk in the park. Um, it's one of those corners where if you if you go and watch it, it's it's amazing, really. But it's all about getting the, getting the entry of the corner right. If you get the entry of the corner right, then the rest of it is, you know, it is quite simple, quite easy, really, to be honest. If you get the entry a little bit wrong, um, then, you know, you get offline a little bit and then it becomes more of a consequence. But these cars are so good um, and such high grip levels that I think it'll be going around there one-handed, adjusting knobs on your steering wheel. Um, after a couple of laps, probably. It'll get your attention for a couple of laps, and it'll be interesting to see but the cars have got so much grip nowadays that it's uh, it definitely will be one of those corners that will become a much lesser problem than it used to be. Michael Stevens says Mattia Bonotto says he plans to attend less races in the future. Is this a good idea for a team principal? I don't actually think it's a good idea for a team principal. Um, I think it's a good idea for a technical director or a te- yeah, or technical manager um, because a lot of stuff technically happens back at base and the end result at the racetrack you know, the, the Formula One teams have evolved a bit now that the technical director doesn't really sort of run the show at the racetrack as such. Obviously, he's there with his input on a lot of occasions, but the racetrack should run with their, their sporting director or their their structure that they have with engineering to get the best out of that product because it's two different things, you know. Getting the best out of your car at a racetrack and designing the best car can be very much two different things. There's a, a, you know, the, the stuff you need, the information you need to go at the racetrack as a, as an engineer, is quite different from what you want from from being um, a technical director to design components. So, I think Mario Benotti staying at home as a technical director to to drive on the the development of the direction of new cars is quite important. But I think if he is the, the team principal, then not having a risk meeting because the politics that a team principal should be going through. It all happen whenever everybody's in the one place. And um, so I think that's there's something going on there that I think would be a bit strange. And um, it'd be interesting to see how it unfolds as, as time goes by if somebody else happens to pop their head up to, to do one of those jobs or the other. And it looks like whoever's going to pop their head up might just be taking on the team principal role, um, you know, maybe as a backup initially at least, but there's something happening for sure. Next up, F1 in America says, any thoughts on maintaining the work-life balance both then and now in F1? How have teams adapted to address personnel burnout through the years? 
course, this is a pertinent question because we just had a 23 race calendar with some triple headers announced for next year. Yeah, 23 race calendar, triple headers, all, all, all good stuff. But, you know, I do remember, you know, way back whenever we had maybe a 16 race calendar, we jumped into a transit van and drove to these races. You flew to very few unless it was an intercontinental thing. You know, all of Europe you drove to, you drove back. Um, so it, it's very, very different the amount of races you have now. But, you know, back in the old days, and I, I say this because I, I come from back in the old days, you know, we used to get to a race meeting and you would go to the track on a Friday morning and you would be lucky if you went to bed before Sunday night. So it's a very different discipline. Now, I agree that all the 23 race calendar, or 22 I think it is at the minute, is going to be tough on people. But the teams have got so big, you know, it's got so enormous nowadays, they should put the priority into a, a rotating shift. You don't want to change everybody, but you know every every block of races can have at least one person change um, within that group just to allow themselves that little bit of downtime. So it's, it's much, much easier to do now than it was in the past. You know, in the past, we didn't we didn't have lots and lots of people. Even whenever we started Jordan in 1991, you know, we had 28 people. And you had to do everything that was coming at you, no matter what it was. You had a lot more testing in those days. You know, a lot of big teams had test teams. So, you know, now it's the same thing. I wouldn't be frightened, personally, with a team organization of the size we have it now to have a 22 or 23 race calendar. It's just a matter of managing it correctly and making sure that there is a little bit of downtime for everybody on a rotor basis so that no one group of people are not there. It's just, you know, change one here and one there at each race meeting or each block of race meetings and uh, get the best out of everybody and give somebody, give everybody a little bit of home life. Now a question about tyres. Tony asks, would you mind explaining tyre construction and the outer layer in particular? Did I hear you once say it was only about three millimetres that was wearable tread? Um, yes, tyre construction, Tony. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a black art, as they say. Um, obviously, there's the, the, the construction itself, the, all the treads, all the, um, sorry, all the, the fibres and whatever it holds all together, the wire beads and all that stuff. Um, and we've gone from cross-ply to radial tyres. Uh, there's difference in all those materials that are underneath that, the, underneath the tyre, the bits you don't see or the bits you shouldn't see. When you see them, it's a bit too late, but all that stuff is the tyre construction. Um, and obviously that's all sealed with, with a rubber impregnated through it. Uh, but then you get to the tyre compound. So let's say the construction could be exactly the same for all of Pirelli's um, tyres, and then they just put this compound on top of it, and basically they make a big, a big tube of rubber um, that is then sort of put on over the top of this and bombed it onto it. Uh, that's why you see sometimes delaminations when the when the rubber uh, delaminates. Uh, in the past, you used to have um, the splice that was called, which is really the rubber was a big flat sheet wrapped around the tire, and it went across the tire at an angle, and it spliced onto the other one like a with an angled joint. Now, if you had the tire on the wrong way around, for example, and you spun the tire, you could open up that splice. That used to happen back in the old days with Goodyear and whatever. If it was on the right way around, it wouldn't open up that splice. But nowadays, the, the compound is made as a rubber tube. And that rubber tube can be different thicknesses. Um, now, I say three millimetres is a nominal thing. Um, because if you have it too thick, the, the compound retains, gets too much heat into it and it will blister. If you have it too thin, it won't hold the heat. 
That's what happens whenever the tires wear. Basically, that rubber on the outside of it, um, you know, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So there's not enough mass to hold on to the temperature. Even going down long straights sometimes, whenever you see a tire having a catastrophic drop-off, it just means that the straight length of the straight at a given track is long enough to lose that tire temperature. And whenever you get to the next corner, tires are a bit low, you just can't go as quick. So it escalates dramatically. Um, but if you have it too, too much rubber on it, then they'll blister. And that was one of the tricks, like with Bridgestone, for example, every race meeting, the thickness of that rubber, every track, the thickness of that rubber would be different. Um, especially for some teams that work very closely with, um, with Bridgestone, i.e. like um, Ferrari. We, as a team at Jordan, would have more or less the standard tyre. But, it, you know, they used to go from 2.4 millimetre thick rubber to 2.6 to 3 millimetres, depending upon the track itself. So that, that compound part is very, very critical. And once you get through that compound part, there is another sort of layer of rubber there, but that has no grip, really. It's just a, it's just a sealing rubber that impregnates the construction of the tyre to stop air leaking. So, um, yeah, the rubber bit you have on top of there normally would be around about that three millimetres thick. Obviously for wets and intermediates, that's the thing that gets thicker. So you have a deeper tread to allow the water to escape, but that's a different deal altogether. And that's why, you know, the intermediate tyre, for example, can actually be a harder compound than a slick tyre because with it being a treaded tyre, it moves around a lot more. So the compound itself needs to be a bit, uh, a bit harder to be stiffer, um, but still to allow the water to get through the treads. Next up, a question about engines. Danny Fitz says, with the new engine regs soon coming together with the expected biofuels, will there be any chance of better sounding engines? He also says, what's your opinion on what the regs should be? We've covered in previous episodes the engine regs, but that question about biofuels and better sounding engines is an interesting one. Well, uh, yeah, Danny, I think, I think it's everything that everybody wants, isn't it? They want, they want the engines to sound better. They want the engines to sound more brutal, um, because that's what gives you the impression of speed. Uh, you know, you can make a car go very fast, but it, visually it's, it's impossible to sort of see it, to be honest. If you look at a Formula 1 car in qualifying now, and you look at a Formula 1 car in the, you know, the first five laps of the race, you're probably going to see seven or eight seconds of lap difference in the, in the speed of the car. And, and you, you know, you, you can see that. Yes, you can see that visibly. But you, you can't see it on TV. You can't. You know, you can't really relate to it, to be honest, unless you've sat and watched it and qualifying through a given section of track and then do the same in the race. You really, you really struggle to see that. Um, so it's, it's one of those sort of things where noise, noise is the perception of, of power, is the perception of speed. So I think if they don't do something with noise, they'll miss, they'll miss a trick. Um, everybody has complained about it on the way since 2014. They've made it a bit better. Um, the noise, and they've made it a bit better because of the way the microphones and stuff they're using on the cars now to to um, to pick up that noise. So everything's been made better slightly artificially because noise has been a major, major requirement for the for the enthusiast to to, to hear, and also even even for the non-enthusiast, you know, noise is if you go down the road and you hear a Subaru or something coming up the road you know that you know it's noisy and it, it makes different noises when you look at it. So it's important that they make sure they don't miss a, miss a, a trick when the regulations change. And I think hopefully with the, with the use of biofuels, they can get back to making the engine sound a little bit more racy. But I think they still should keep the, some of the hybrid. I think it's wrong, again, to miss a trick if they throw that away. 
but it needs to be done in a different way. And the article I did before, I think, explains most of that. But um, it needs to be separated a little bit to allow other engine companies to come in that can make good engines but aren't involved too much in the electrical side of, of running engines. Next up, a question from Dr. Evil. I'm sure we've had questions from Dr. Evil before. Who says, does any of the aero development convert to something reusable in the real world? Um, I don't think that the, the actual aero development of a Formula 1 car converts um, in reality. I think some of the tools it's used do help. Um, you know, big car industries spend huge, huge amounts of money on, on researching to get that, you know, point in efficiency. Um, because it's, it's critically important for fuel consumption, it's crit critically important for, for everything, for the sales gimmick. Um, so Formula One is out there on its own, to be honest. Uh, it, it's, it's about creating a device that within a set of regulations that are very limited, creates a massive amount of downforce. Efficiency is one thing, but this, this is just built to create a massive amount of downforce. And for its cross-sectional area, a Formula One car does a fantastic job at creating downforce. It's you know, exploiting airflow hugely. Um, I wouldn't, so I wouldn't be looking at that and thinking any of that stuff cross-references, to be honest. But all, lots and lots of other stuff that within it, you know, efficiency of radiator design, that sort of stuff, that can all cross-reference over. And that's, you know, that's part of the aerodynamic package. So there are things and there are directions. Unfortunately, Formula One has got a, to a point, you know, a limitless budget on this sort of stuff. And no road car has. So whatever you do in a Formula One car, whatever it costs, you probably need to divide it by 100 before it would find its way to, to, to a road car. And that's the big, that's the critical thing. And it's, it's just impossible. Now we have a question from Eamon Leai. Apologies if I've got that, uh, that surname pronunciation wrong. Uh, I've been confused by all the rule changes in the last few years. Can you explain what a driver has available to boost the speed of a car during the lap? I know they have DRS, but do they still have curves and is it manually operated? Um, I can explain it, yes, um, if I really sort of understand it. They, they don't actually have curves now. They have what's called ERS, which is a very similar thing, but it's, um, it's a system that's built onto the engine. Um, basically, there's a, an electric motor on the engine that connects up to the crankshaft of the engine, let's say. There's an electric motor in the turbo, and basically, uh, you can make that electric motor be driven by the turbo, which makes which generates electricity, a bit like a dynamo on your old bicycle, and charges up a battery pack. And that battery pack then can be displaced either to the turbo to speed up the turbo, so you don't get any what's called turbo lag, or to the motor on the on the engine, which gives you more power. The maximum power you can get from the electrical side of it is 160 horsepower for 30 seconds of any given lap. That's that's the criteria. But the driver doesn't have control over that. He has control over the harvesting of it, how to recharge the batteries. Um, he has control over the amount of power that can go to it. But the 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 main thing is it's just connected to the throttle pedal a bit like a normal engine. It's just a normal engine with a bit more power from, a, from an electrical system, but it's still just connected to the throttle pedal. So the driver can't really press a button to give him that, you know, that boost in, in power when he wants it to fend somebody off. He just uses a general amount during the lap. Yes, they have overtake buttons, but that's mainly to give the engine that little bit more power for that limited amount of time. So it might just adjust the ignition and the fueling a fraction to give them that little bit more power. Um, but in general, the mapping of the electrical part is 
is together with the mapping of the of the, the um, fossil fuel part, and it just gives power at the rear wheels, so the driver can't really displace it when he needs it. A question from Potato Chipsio on Twitter: Will IndyCar Aero screens find their way to F1, and if so, what's the implications for rear wing aero? How different will it be to IndyCar? In one way, I hope they do, because at the end of the day. Um, it's the small particles that you see lots of the time that are going to hit a driver in the head. The big bit, the wheel or the, or the front wing assembly, um, you know, it's a very limited amount of time that happens. We have seen it, and the Halo's done a, done a great job at, at deflecting it. Uh, we have seen one car on top of another, and the Halo's done a great job of, of deflecting it. But having the screen on top of that won't do any harm. It'll just pick up those small bits. Um, you know, whenever Roman Grosjean was complaining about getting hit in the finger with a stone, um, you know, that sort of thing. It, it's not much, but it could be a bunch of stones or it could be another part of a, a small part of a car that comes through the halo and gets you in the face. Um, lots of the time, lots of the helmets now have got, you know, bulletproof visors and, you know, um, intrusion panels in the front of the helmet so it's much much safer than it used to be in the past like whenever Felipe Massa had his got hit in the head with a spring um, but it would be it would be missing a, a missing the potential if they didn't look at it because Indy cars have shown they can drive with what they've got now it does look a bit a bit a bit bulbous but Indy cars couldn't drive with what they've got now um, on oval tracks on road circuits Normal racetracks, all of them. So they've got no real complaints. Yes, that you know the temperature in the cockpit it was a bit high, and some people complained about that. But at the end of the day, they've had a championship. They've had a championship winner. They've all raced. Nobody has ever said, "Oh, can't handle this halo device." So it's there. The opening's there to do something well with it. Maybe aesthetically, it needs a little bit of a, a blend in with the car, a little bit better. But again, on the on the Indy car, it was done as an afterthought. So I hope for the future in the next maybe three years, we see a push and a direction to have something of that nature and maybe, you know, a little bit more aesthetically pleasing to the eye. That's all I would ask. I don't think it'll change the arrow that much. It'll be the same for everybody. So what's the problem? You know, it's the same deal, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, it's the same for everybody. Now we've got a few questions about the past. Peter Cowan asks about the 95-96 Jordan, what he calls the splits slash gill side pods to the layman they look like they should be really slippery seeing that the concept disappeared could you explain what the negatives were um negatives i suppose uh the reality of the the side pods having what's called the undercut in them now where the the bottom of the chassis itself the bottom of the front of the chassis leads through into that undercut area of the side pod um with the with the split gill um side pod inlets my aim at that point in time was to make them tall and as slim as possible. So the, you know you can make the front of the side pod a little bit narrower and get the airflow coming out from between the chassis, because the chassis in those days weren't quite as high, between the chassis and the front wheel. Um, and instead of it going down the radiator duct, basically it went around the side of the car into the coke bowl. So it was a tall and narrow, as opposed to what we see today is um, wide and you know not very tall, basically, but they start high up. Um, and the, the high up part is important because of the weight coming off the front wing. You know, the top edge of that side pod, the top edge of the radiator inlet duct is quite critical because of the airflow coming off the front wing. Um, so they're trying to get all the airflow underneath all that and around that undercut side pod 
and that really didn't fit in with the with the tall narrow side port inlet. At the time, I you know felt it was a good you know a good logical reason to go with it. It wasn't it wasn't bad. Um, I think probably looking back at it now, I would have expected more from a development, but it's like all these cars. Once you go down a route, you're going down that route, and you can't really come back. You know, you don't have the the money or the time. Um, I think if I looked at the radiator inlet, I liked the solution to better, but I would now I would do it differently. It would be higher up, but it would be the the ninety five Jordan, which had the a sort of um, more an offset to the chassis profile in that area, um, but it needed to be higher up, allowing the airflow underneath it to be a bit better. So it's time. Time evolves different solutions. Um, I think that's the best way of putting it. But at that point in time, nothing was really wrong. It worked okay. We had some decent results with it, but it wasn't just that that meant there was decent results instead of good results. So uh, time will always evolve a new solution. Question from Colin Martin, who says, did you get on with Eddie Irvine while at Jordan? Did anybody ever get on with Eddie Irvine? Uh, no, I did, actually. Yeah, Eddie was, you know, Eddie was a good guy. Very, very different from Rivens Barrichello um, in that he was just a different attitude completely to it. Um, Rubens was a bit difficult because Rubens was obviously devoted to Formula One. That was his. That's where he was going to. And I think I'd have to say that Eddie's initial ninety three ninety four program was all about thinking the bubble might burst. You know, he really did enjoy it, but he was very defensive of it because he he wasn't sure if he should be there. He wasn't sure how he could continue because he had no money. Um, at that point in time, he had no money uh, worth talking about. Much, much more than the rest of us, but no money. Um, so he was—he spent a couple of years, I suppose, not quite knowing where life was going to take him. Um, and uh, so a different person altogether. Um, but yeah, I got on with Eddie. Eddie was a great guy to work with. He was just black and white in the fight. that Eddie went quicker, it went slower. There was no in-between, there was no... Maybe it would be this or maybe it would be that. He just drove the car and drove it very, very well. Very different person from Rubens, but both of them, in a way, been able to pull the same result out of the car. So, yeah, um, good to work with. And, and yes, I got on with them pretty good. And the final question, another one about the past from Antonio Rossi, who says there were stories in 2004 about you joining the planned Midland F1 project, which eventually went on to take over Jordan. I believe you worked on this project as a consultant for Delara, who were involved in the car, but was there ever a possibility of taking a bigger role with the team, especially if it had started from scratch? Um, Antonio, yeah, I did. I was involved in that project initially, but it was with Delara. Delara asked me to come and see them and, and sort of, talk to him about what a Formula One car should be. And uh, Mr. Delara is a lovely guy. You know, I've built my own cars to race against him. And during that period where we were, where Anson was quite good, we beat Delara in Formula Three. So that was quite good as well. And Mr. Delara will still remember that to this day. And I still get my little Christmas parcel from Delara um, with a bit of Parmesan in it and a bottle of Fizzy Red and various tins of stuff uh, at, you know, at Christmas from them since way back since since 2004. So thank you very much for that. It's been a pleasure to have worked with them. Um, it was great. As, as I say, I went down there for really for a week initially to sort of talk to their design engineers about what Formula One car was. I realized during that week that they did a really good job with what they did. They really understood stuff much, much better than what we thought. Um, 
the, the thing about Formula One was it was about having more money or more commitment to complicated solutions, I suppose. Whereas their production car type stuff didn't have that. Um, so I opened their eyes to a few things, to be honest. Um, and then they asked me to continue and come and see them, you know, a couple of days a week just to make sure they were going the right direction with the car, which I which I did. That was all for Delara. And then um, one day they asked me if I would you know, meet up with the guys, the Midland people who were going to set this team up, which I did. And that was the day I decided I didn't want to be involved in the in the project anymore. I wasn't really too happy with uh, what they were. Um, and actually it was through one of those meetings that I spoke to Colin Collis about Jordan and said, look, why are you doing this? Why not buy that team? You know, Jordan Grand Prix wants to sell itself. Um, and we went through various charts and scenarios and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, they bought the, they bought Eddie out and, and uh, the Midland Formula One team was was founded. So I suppose I, you know, I didn't want to work for the team because it wasn't a team that I could see going anywhere. As far as uh, its structure, it wasn't having a plan for the future. It just was wanting to get into Formula One because there was probably money there somewhere. Um, but I was glad they took over Jordan because they kept quite a lot of good people employed at a time whenever Eddie was struggling. So um, no big plans for the future for me there, but I enjoyed my time with Delara. Great guy to work with. Um, really runs a good, a good, a good operation. I hope you got your finder's fee for uh, suggesting Jordan to them. That's uh, the important thing to do. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much to everyone for your questions. Sorry we couldn't get through all of them. We'll be taking more in the future, so do fire some through to Gary on Twitter. He's on at GaryAndersonF1. Of course, we're going to turn our attention to the Turkish Grand Prix, and we will be back next week with more from Gary.